Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and today is Friday, July 3rd. It has been uh, just about a month, over a month since uh, my last episode, which I recorded uh, on June 1st. And um, wow, what a month it has been. Um, 2020 itself feels like it's been quite a year already, quite a pivotal year in history. But in the history of 2020, I would say so far, June really feels like it's been one of the most pivotal months in um, uh, that, that you know stories will be told about for decades to come. Um, so this episode here is actually a bit of a bridge episode. Um, just before um, June 1st, um, uh, the murder of uh, George Floyd happened. And right around then is when I was in the middle of recording my Storytelling 101 series. And given all the changes that have happened in the past, just in the past month, just in the past few weeks, it doesn't feel appropriate anymore for me to continue to do the Storytelling 101 series using the Qantas story as an example. That just feels, the world has shifted dramatically in just the past uh, few weeks. Um, I'm going to finish out the Storytelling 101 series in the next couple of episodes, but I'm actually going to use a different story as the basis for the Storytelling 101 series. And that story is actually going to be connected to Black Lives Matter. Um, and so in this episode, this bridge episode right now, I'm going to connect Black Lives Matter, connect with Black Lives Matter, um, and uh, use storytelling as a way that we can all see our roles in the the broader historical story of uh, Black Lives Mattering, and and how can we each of us play a role in moving the stories forward, uh, the stories that matter. So some of the things that have happened um, over the past month uh, have been turning points in so many, so many stories. Um, some of these stories, the, the story of Black Lives Matter itself, for example, that particular phrase, uh, that, that phrase came into the popular lexicon around about 2014, um, right after August 2014, starting with protests in Ferguson. But the thematic story of Black Lives Matter has a much longer history. And, and we are now in a moment where there, there are significant turning points in that story. Um, there are also We're also in a moment of turning points in so many other stories. So in this episode, I'm going to take a moment to go through some of those turning points, but then I'm actually going to dive into one particular story. And that's the story of the arrest of Henry Louis Gates Jr., a renowned African-American professor of, at Harvard way back in 2009. And I'm going to actually tell the story from the perspective of um, a surprising document. Um, and I'm going to then analyze that document uh, uh, which is actually the police report of that arrest. I'm going to analyze that that police report as itself a story to show how these narratives that um, you know people take for granted as the factual uh, statement of of um, events are in themselves artfully written stories to portray deliberately. Um, black lives as not mattering in the story. So I'm going to start with that police report, and then I'm going to um, use that as a way to uh, show how important it is to think through these things as stories and as stories that matter, and to ask ourselves whose lives are centered in some of these stories, and and how can we now make a difference in recentering those stories. And so um, let's let's dive in. Um, some of the major moments that have happened just in the past month, since June 1st. Um, uh, in the first few weeks of June, we saw so many things that have uh, changed worldwide and, uh, and leading up to the critical date of Juneteenth, June 19th. Um, and uh, there has been a worldwide uh, awareness and a recognition of this date um, and uh, that, that touched so many different unlikely places all around the world. Uh, I'll start with my own context at the company where I work, which is a tech company with, with about 5,000 people worldwide. Um, within the company, uh, myself and a few other colleagues, 
um, really began to come around um, the theme of Juneteenth, and especially our black colleagues led the way in um, creating a company-wide event to raise awareness and to inform people um, on the history and the significance of Juneteenth. This was a groundbreaking moment for the company where I worked. Um, I have not seen in this tech company this much of an awareness supported by uh, just about everybody at the company um, for an awareness internally, deeply internal to the company um, on Juneteenth and on Black Lives and on Black Lives Matter. For a tech company in 2020, um, this particular tech company anyway, to openly affirm and acknowledge Black Lives Mattering uh, is, is an event that I do not think would have happened even as recently as a year ago or even as recently as a few months ago. So that was a, a major change. Now, of course, other tech companies like Twitter, Google, Facebook, etc., uh, are all out in public trying to say and and do the, the or at least look like they're doing the right thing. And in so many cases, those are, um, you know, marketing uh, messages and uh, they're, they're trying to rapidly align themselves on the right side of history, at least on appearance. And of course, they're being rightly criticized for, um, you know, just, just making... Um, a show of being in support of Black Lives Mattering, but then when you dig a little bit and you look at their hiring practices and you look at their 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 own discriminatory practices internally, they, they still have a long ways to go. And sure enough, the company I work for is no different. There's a lot of work we need to do internally. Um, but what I'm taking away from that is that this was a moment where I'm seeing so many people at least openly uh, hungry for information and wanting to know how they can help, how they can uh, do their part and not have it be all on just our black colleagues, just on um, black people to to um, shoulder the burden. That's a really, really hopeful sign. Is it enough? No, nowhere near enough. Do we all have a lot of work to do? Absolutely. Um, but the interesting thing for me was was hearing my own family in India, my father actually asking about Juneteenth and reflecting on the parallels um, in India itself. And my father and I having a very frank conversation about how for me growing up and for so many of, of my uh, fellow Indian immigrants and Indian American uh, communities, this is a moment of reckoning for us to, to think about how anti-black racism has been such a part of um, my own um, formative years and um, in how this is a moment for where for so many of us who are not black, this is this is a moment that we're all called to to reflect and to do something concrete about it. So that's another really, really hopeful sign. Uh, another momentous thing that happened in June is right after Juneteenth on that Saturday, uh, Trump had this major um, rally in Tulsa, itself having this long history of racial violence, anti-black violence specifically. And that turned out very badly for Trump. Not many people showed up. That in itself is a really, really hopeful turning point. Right after that or around that, so many um, mementos and uh, celebrations of racism in the U.S., uh, as memorialized in these relatively new statues uh, that celebrate um, racist uh, uh, Confederate uh, figures. Um, these statues came up in the U.S. only in the past 20, 30 years or so. It's not like these statues were around, you know, for 100 plus years. It's not like they're actually historical statues. They're relatively modern statues. And, and these now are beginning to get taken down. Um, the Confederate flag, which in the U.S. is actually a symbol of Southern racism uh, in, in the Confederacy, in the, the war, the Civil War, um, those Confederate flags are now being taken down. And uh, the state of Mississippi, uh, which is the last state to actually have the Confederate flag as actually part of its own state flag, just just took down that flag, just voted um, in, by overwhelming numbers to, to take down that flag. Um, Across the world, uh, lots of moments over just the past month of various different, um, uh, you know, uh, countries, uh, groups, cultures also coming to a reckoning and making change happen. Something that seems relatively trivial is there is this this um, this cream in India 
uh, called Fair and Lovely. It's a cream made by Unilever. Um, and it's, it's supposed, it's, I, I remember seeing this cream growing up, that this cream is supposed to be something that helps people's skin get lighter. It's actually marketed as a lightening, uh, cream. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I grew up, uh, in South India and, um, uh, I have dark skin and in India, there's this phenomenon of colorism and colorism is a phenomenon that's, that's actually pretty, pretty, uh, um, uh, prominent in many, many cultures, the idea that the fairer your skin is, the more you're looked at as um, better than darker-skinned people. Um, so this is a way in which sort of anti-dark racism, uh, anti-dark colorism has been actually a part of many, many different uh, cultures. And so Unilever came out just in the past few weeks and uh, declared that it was going to actually change that fair and lovely cream um, they're going to call it glow and lovely, and they're not going to use the words, you know, fair or lightning in their product description. Now, is that enough? Absolutely not. Like they're still making this goddamn cream and it still is supposed to be a cream that people can use to make themselves, you know, glow in a lighter color. Um, but at least it's a step in the right direction. It's, it's a long time criticism of this cream. It's been marketed in India since 1975. I was born in 1976. Um, and uh, so it's nowhere near enough. But to actually see this, this tangible change of at least name and, and, a, and a worldwide brand at least acknowledging that marketing something as deliberately being used to lighten your skin is a racist uh, act in 2020, and they want to change their their wording, and hopefully the pressure will be on them to actually change the cream itself and get rid of it. Um, but that's also a an example for me of how this is a moment that's just not a U.S. centric moment. This feels like a, a global moment um, where there's a global reckoning, and there there's are there are these turning points in so many stories around a, a larger uh, problem and a larger solution. Um, it feels like a moment of motivation and for, for so many of us to make our stories part of this current global story turning point. Uh, from a storytelling perspective, this is a moment where for so many of us, we are now encountering inciting incidents that are calling us into action and making us realize that we are also responsible in so many ways for moving the story forward and that we have a role to play um, and it, it does feel like so many of us feel compelled, impelled, motivated. There is a tension in the air, and that tension is pulling us forward. Um, and there is a determination to do more than just say the right thing. With that, let me actually now shift gears a little bit and dive into an example of a, uh, a similar turning point moment going back to 2009. So let me take you back to uh, the arrest of um, Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. and um, how storytelling actually shows up in uh, the account of that arrest. Let us walk back in time to 2009. <music> Just about 11 years ago, July 16, 2009, this event happens, this incident happens in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, Cambridge is a, is a small little um, uh, uh, part of Boston. It's, it's, it's right next to Boston. And Cambridge is actually where Harvard University is, is located. And in a quiet side street in Cambridge, uh, uh, in, in, you know, around about in the early afternoon, right after about noon, or close to around one o'clock or so, um, there's this, this incident happens. It's, it's a sleepy summer afternoon. It's, it's July. It's mid-July. It's actually kind of a humid day that day. Um, and on, on that day, in that afternoon, on that afternoon, this slightly elderly, um, African-American, short, um, frail, distinguished um, gentleman gets arrested on the porch of his own house by the Cambridge police. Now, that arrest triggers a lot of different incidents uh, and, and events since then. But right now, what I want to do is actually read aloud to you the actual police report written by the arresting officer. 
And I'm going to do this for a couple of reasons. One is I want to actually immerse you into the scene of the moment um, from the actual official document of the arrest. Uh, the second reason is, as I will get into after I read this police report out, I want us to be listening for how this is actually written as a story. It feels initially like a, just a statement of fact. It is actually the official record. It is the police report. But as I read this out loud, I'd, I'd like you to listen for some of the storytelling moves that the arresting officer uh, does in this report. And then we will kind of dive into that after this. All right, so let's begin the police report. This is uh, the reporting officer is one James Crowley. And this happens on July 16, 2009. The date and time reported is 12.44 p.m. On Thursday, July 16, 2009, Henry Gates Jr. of Ware Street, Cambridge, Mass., was placed under arrest at Ware Street after being observed exhibiting loud and tumultuous behavior in a public place directed at a uniformed police officer who was present investigating a report of a crime in progress. These actions on the behalf of Gates served no legitimate purpose and caused citizens passing by this location to stop and take notice while appearing surprised and alarmed. On the above time and date, I was on uniform duty in an unmarked police cruiser assigned to the administration section, working from 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. At approximately 12.44 p.m., I was operating my cruiser on Harvard Street, near Ware Street. At that time, I overheard an ECC broadcast for a possible break-in progress at Ware Street. Due to my proximity, I responded. When I arrived at Ware Street, I radioed ECC and asked that they have the caller meet me at the front door to this residence. I was told that the caller was already outside. As I was getting this information, I climbed the porch stairs toward the front door. As I reached the door, a female voice called out to me. I turned and looked in the direction of the voice and observed a white female, later identified as blank, who was standing on the sidewalk in front of the residence, held a wireless telephone in her hand, and told me that it was she who called. She went on to tell me that she observed what appeared to be two black males with backpacks on the porch of this address on Ware Street. She told me that her suspicions were aroused when she observed one of the men wedging his shoulder into the door as if he was trying to force entry. Since I was the only police officer on location and had my back to the front door as I spoke with her, I asked that she wait for other responding officers while I investigated further. As I turned and faced the door, I could see an older black male standing in the foyer. I made this observation through the glass-paned front door. As I stood in plain view of this man, later identified as Gates, I asked if he would step out onto the porch and speak with me. He replied, No, I will not. He then demanded to know who I was. I told him that I was Sergeant Crowley from the Cambridge Police and that I was, quote, investigating a report of a break-in in progress, unquote, at the residence. While I was making this statement, Gates opened the front door and exclaimed, quote, why? Because I'm a black man in America? Unquote. I then asked Gates if there was anyone else in the residence. While yelling, he told me that it was none of my business and accused me of being a racist police officer. I assured Gates that I was responding to a citizen's call to the Cambridge police and that the caller was outside as we spoke. Gates seemed to ignore me and picked up a cordless telephone and dialed an unknown telephone number. As he did so, I radioed on Channel 1 that I was off in the residence with someone who appeared to be a resident, but very uncooperative. I then overheard Gates asking the person 
on the other end of his telephone call to, quote, get the chief, and, quote, what's the chief's name? Gates was telling the person on the other end of the call that he was dealing with a racist police officer in his home. Gates then turned to me and told me that I had no idea who I was, quote, messing with, and that I had not heard the last of it. While I was led to believe that Gates was lawfully in the residence, I was quite surprised and confused with the behavior he exhibited toward me. I asked Gates to provide me with photo identification so that I could verify that he resided at this address on Ware Street, and so that I could radio my findings to ECC. Gates initially refused, demanding that I show him identification, but then did supply me with a Harvard University identification card. Upon learning that Gates was affiliated with Harvard, I radioed and requested the presence of the Harvard University police. With the Harvard University identification in hand, I radioed my findings to ECC on Channel 2 and prepared to leave. Gates again asked for my name, which I began to provide. Gates began to yell over my spoken words by accusing me of being a racist police officer and leveling threats that he wasn't someone to mess with. At some point during this exchange, I became aware that Officer Carlos Figueroa was standing behind me. When Gates asked a third time for my name, I explained to him that I had provided it at his request two separate times. Gates continued to yell at me. I told Gates that I was leaving his residence and that if he had any other questions regarding the matter, I would speak with him outside of the residence. As I began walking through the foyer toward the front door, I could hear Gates again demanding my name. I again told Gates that I would speak with him outside. My reason for wanting to leave the residence was that Gates was yelling very loud and the acoustics of the kitchen and foyer were making it difficult for me to transmit pertinent information to ECC or other responding units. His reply was, quote, Yeah, I'll speak with your mama outside, unquote. When I left the residence, I noted that there were several Cambridge and Harvard University police officers assembled on the sidewalk in front of the residence. Additionally, the caller and at least seven unidentified passers-by were looking in the direction of Gates, who had followed me outside of the residence. As I descended the stairs to the sidewalk, Gates continued to yell at me, accusing me of racial bias, and continued to tell me that I had not heard the last of him. Due to the tumultuous manner Gates had exhibited in his residence, as well as his continued tumultuous behavior outside the residence, in view of the public, I warned Gates that he was becoming disorderly. Gates ignored my warning and continued to yell, which drew the attention of both the police officers and citizens, who appeared surprised and alarmed by Gates' outburst. For a second time, I warned Gates to calm down while I withdrew my department-issued handcuffs from their carrying case. Gates again ignored my warning and continued to yell at me. It was at this time that I informed Gates that he was under arrest. I then stepped up the stairs, onto the porch, and attempted to place handcuffs on Gates. Gates initially resisted my attempt to handcuff him, yelling that he was, quote, disabled, unquote, and would fall without his cane. After the handcuffs were properly applied, Gates complained that they were too tight. I ordered Officer Ivy, who was among the responding officers, to handcuff Gates with his arms in front of him for his comfort, while I secured a cane for Gates from within the residence. I then asked Gates if he would like an officer to take possession of his house key and secure his front door, which he left wide open. Gates told me, that the door was unsecurable due to a previous break-in attempt at the residence. Shortly thereafter, a Harvard University maintenance person arrived on scene and appeared familiar with Gates. 
I asked Gates if he was comfortable with this Harvard University maintenance person securing his residence. He told me that he was. After a brief consultation with Sergeant, La Sergeant Lashley and upon Gates's request, he was transported to 125 6th Street in a police cruiser, Car 1, Officers Graham and Ivy, where he was booked and processed by Officer J.P. Crowley. All right, so that is the official police report of this incident filed by one James Crowley. Now, one of the reasons that this document stood out for me back in 2009 when I was a graduate student studying communication and storytelling, um, along with my, my advisor and colleague, Stephen Giancarella, who is a renowned uh, uh, scholar of uh, folklore, folklore studies, um, what hit us right away was the parallels between how Crowley constructed this narrative and what... Uh, we were both familiar with, and, and Stephen had done a lot of research in the field of folklore, with the idea of the hero's journey, the hero's narrative. And in the storytelling series so far, as I've been describing the concepts of main character and motivating tension, some of you may, may have recognized the parallels with uh, the work of Joseph Campbell and myths and the idea of the hero's journey. Um, and so this is as good a moment as any to kind of uh, summarize the hero's journey motif and then connect to how uh, this police officer uh, uses some of that. Now, the hero's journey is actually a motif that Joseph Campbell um, uh, posited uh, he could find in most of the major epic stories across lots of different civilizations and cultures. And the hero's journey goes something like this. Um, the, 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 it's a cycle, and the cycle begins with the main character, the hero, in some situation where everything is just known. It's the known world, the hero is, is familiar in this world, uh, and may actually be a, a fairly unremarkable person, uh, a fairly ordinary person, not yet a quote-unquote hero. But then something happens, an inciting incident, and the person who is the main character gets uh, receives a call to adventure. And this call to adventure is of a kind that this person cannot ignore. And when the person receives the call to adventure and responds to the call to adventure, there's then a threshold moment where this person crosses a threshold from the known into the unknown. And when they enter the world of the unknown, this is where everything is uncertain. They are now in a dangerous situation. They encounter both um, villains, enemies, monsters, and they also encounter uh, guides, supports, mentors to, to help them through this, navigate through this. They encounter lots of challenges and temptations. And at some point, there is a massive challenge. There's an abyss that they must confront. Um, and this abyss usually is the undoing of them. There is there is uh, some element of, of a death and a transformation that happens deep in the world of the unknown. And coming out of that, the hero is transformed. The hero learns something critical about themselves and, and, and does some atonement and emerges out of the world of the unknown, passes through another threshold experience back into the world of the known with now a, a series of virtues that have transformed their character. They are now a, a different person. They're, they, are, they are better in some ways, uh, and it glows around them. And they're now a hero. They've conquered not just an external monster, but some of their own inner monsters as well, until the next call to adventure happens. This is, this is in some ways a, a cyclical process. Now, this hero's motif, hero's journey motif, it shows up in a lot of different epics and myths and so on. And so if we take a look at this, this police report, we can see some of those parallels, the way this police report starts. The main character in this police report is actually the officer, Officer James Crowley. And it, everything starts out fine. He's on uniform duty. He is, he's driving around. And then he overhears a broadcast for a possible break-in. And so he responds. That in itself is not necessarily a call to adventure. But when he arrives at the residence, uh, and and um, he wants to meet the caller. The caller is not there around. He climbs the porch toward the front door, and as he reaches the door, a female voice calls out to him. He turns and looks in the direction of the voice, and he sees this woman standing there, a white woman that he, he, he describes her as a white woman. 
this is in some ways the character of the damsel in in many of these these epic stories. There's the hero, James Crowley, and now he meets the damsel. And the damsel tells him that she's actually worried. She's concerned. Uh, She observed what appeared to be two black men with backpacks, two black males with backpacks. Her suspicions were aroused when she observed one of the men wedging his shoulder as he was trying to force entry. So here you have the ingredients of a damsel not maybe not quite in distress, but a damsel for whom now the hero feels some responsibility to protect. And in fact, he he describes that he is the only police officer on location and he had his back to the front door as he spoke with her. This is a moment where we, listening to the story, are intended to feel like our own neck kind of prickle, feeling the danger that this hero is now in. He's talking to the damsel and there's danger behind him. This is, in, in, we're, we're conditioned to expect like there's some monster right around him. So, so he says to her, she wait for other responding officers while I investigate further. So now he leaves the damsel on the street. He turns and faces the door and he sees now the next character in the story, an older black male standing in the foyer. And this is now in many of these stories. If you have the damsel in distress, you have the main character, the knight, the hero. Now you have the monster, the dragon, the older black male standing in the foyer. He's waiting there for the hero to approach. And from that point on, there's now this confrontation that happens between the good, the person who's good, which is James Crowley, and evil, this this menacing black figure. And this menacing black figure begins to actually confound the hero right away, um, demanding to know who he was, not complying with the officer's very reasonable request for, you know, coming out onto the porch to speak with him and so on. And this, this, this monster is now painted as irrational. Uh, he's yelling. Um, he's, he's accusing the officer of being racist. Um, he is then threatening the the officer and and saying you don't know who you're messing with uh, all this the officer is now quite surprised and confused with the behavior exhibited so we're now the, the plot for the main character is sinking deeper and deeper and deeper uh, he's 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 sliding into trouble more and more he's in the world of the unknown um, and everything is confounding and bewildering because this monster is 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 you know behaving in such a such a weird way and the the, the poor hero here does not know what to do um, and at this point, this other officer arrives. This is now a supporting character that shows up to to be right behind and give backup to um, to Crowley. And at that moment, what happens is, um, uh, uh, you know, he the the officer identifies there is a, actually a solution to this. Crowley realizes that he can um, lure the monster out onto the front porch. Uh, so he takes his Harvard ID card and walks out of the residence with, with that, bringing the monster out with him. And now the monster is out in public and yelling and screaming. And this point uh, is where the officer turns around and tells the monster, tells the professor, um, hey, you're being disorderly. You're now, you know, challenges him and tells him you are out of line here and I'm going to arrest you. And at that point, that's the solution. That's the the resolution. That's the moment of climax. And and that moment, um, there's this other scene where he now goes back up the porch and tries to put, you know, he withdraws his department issued handcuffs from their carrying case. It's it's almost like the the knight has warned the dragon a few times, and the knight is now sliding his beautiful sword out from his scabbard. Um, and then the, the monster struggles for a little bit. He finally applies the handcuffs on the monster. And now the monster begins to complain. Oh, I'm disabled, quote unquote. Um, I need my cane. You know, at this point now, the narrative shifts. The monster is pitiful. It's pathetic. It's an old man who needs a cane. He's disabled. Oh, and oh, look, this poor, this this hero, look how virtuous this hero is. He actually asks the other officer to put the handcuffs in a more comfortable position for him. And he then goes and finds a cane for him. And he's also concerned enough to ask him, hey, are you okay with leaving your residence with this maintenance officer and so on? So at this point now, now that the monster has been controlled, now the hero can, can d- demonstrate his virtuous, compassionate side. Uh, the damsel is probably watching as well, and this is all intended to impress people as to how concerned and compassionate and rational and calm and reasonable the hero is in all of this. 
So that sort of is the the arc in in so many ways. And so when Stephen and I saw this report, it struck us just how carefully this was constructed to evoke sympathy. And in fact, for so many people in Massachusetts, when this incident first gets covered and then this police report gets released almost immediately and the news runs with it, the popular opinion immediately is on the side of the police officer of, wow, he was trying to do the right thing. What's wrong with this this professor? Ah, he's so... Um, you know, uh, you know, he he's so full of himself. It's the don't you know who I am kind of defense. And, oh my God, you know, he the professor absolutely deserved to get the shit kicked out of him because he was so disrespectful of the police officer. And and in so many ways, this shocked us because there was there was this deliberate construction um, around painting the professor as being the irrational one and painting the police officer as being the rational one. In fact, many of you probably who had never heard of this story before, when you hear this police report, when you hear this, these details, you're probably also wondering, hey, Hari, why are you trying to make such a big deal of this? Clearly, this was just a, an incident where the, the professor should have known better, you know, and the officer was doing absolutely the right thing. In fact, the officer was being very respectful and professional. The professor is lucky that it didn't get worse, especially now what we know about how many black men actually get killed in encounters like this. So, and in fact, right after that moment, so many black leaders uh, criticized the professor, saying, hey, professor, welcome to the world of being a black man in America. Um, you know, uh, you are lucky that you're a professor at Harvard. Uh, if you were any other black man, you'd, have, you'd, be, you'd be dead by now. Which is an unfair criticism because Gates actually is, is, is a uh, world-renowned scholar of um, African-American history. Um, but for what it's worth, this, this speaks to a moment in 2009 where popular opinion is on the side of the police um, and through narratives like this. So how does this come to be? Um, it isn't so much that, you know, uh, James Crowley sits down. It, it's not like James Crowley has had a, a folklore class with, with my friend Stephen and, and knows how to write folklore and has deliberately decided to write this narrative in this way. That's not the point. The, the point is that this is actually a style of writing that shows up in many different police reports. And it's not that there is an explicit instruction to police on how to write folklore. It's actually that this is the dominant story type that for many of us, we have integrated this story about who black people are and how much of a threat they are into our daily lives. We see these stories around us all the time in movies, in ads, even for you know things like the fair and lovely cream, there is this 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 dominant sort of stereotype and assumption where we just live in a world of language that paints darker skin, black people especially, as being uh, the other, as being monsters. And it paints, you know, people like the police um, as the forces of calm and order and good. There is this and this is in so many ways how whiteness works. Whiteness is a is a cultural phenomenon. It's not really about whether you have white skin or not. It's you know uh, it's about how we are susceptible and how we um, uh, unconsciously um, repeat stories that paint dark people and black people as the monster. Walter Mignolo um, is a renowned um, Argentinian professor uh, of decolonial studies, and, and one of the groundbreaking books that, that he has written, um, he's written two books, they're both called uh, you know, The Darker Side of the Renaissance and The Darker Side of Western Modernity. And one of the points he makes with that very evocative title is that even when you think about something like the Renaissance, you know, in history, in Western history, we tend to first learn of the Renaissance as the enlightening. And that word in of itself is a is a huge hint, a signal that underneath the project of the Renaissance, underneath the project of Western modernity, is this very subconscious and very, very conscious, concrete, violent attempt to make black people and darker people uh, be seen as inhuman, subhuman, uh, and monstrous. Um, and so this police report is just a, an example of storytelling where 
black lives actually don't matter. This is a story where the black life of the professor is actually made to be not really even worthy of being a life in the first place. He's treated as an unknowable, irrational, confusing monster. Um, and, and to elicit sympathy for the police who are treating him as human when uh, the report is intended to get people to sympathize and say, wow, the police are actually doing more than what this professor deserves. That was actually the popular backlash against the professor that happened in 2009. It's no coincidence that, that I was also around the same time that Obama had just become president. This is the summer after he got inaugurated to be president in January. So this is just less than six months later, with Obama being the first uh, black president in the history of the United States. Um, and so in so many ways, this was also a proxy for a cultural backlash against uh, Obama and against black people in general in the United States, just six months before this moment happened, just six months before July 16, 2009. In January of 2009, when Obama was inaugurated, there was this huge celebration all across the U.S. and most of the world that, ah, now that a black man is president of the United States, we can finally say racism is over. Black people cannot complain anymore about, prefer about racism because there is now a black man as president. That was just six months before this incident happened. And when this incident happens, in fact, people call out to that and say, there's no reason for this professor to complain that the police is being racist. Clearly, the police cannot be racist because there is a black man as president of the United States. All right. With that analysis over, what has changed since then? What are the turning points that have happened in, in the story of Black Lives Matter since that moment onward? And what are some signs of hope for us now? Let's turn to that in the next segment. So after 2009 and this incident that for the most part, most people have forgotten, um, you know, this happened 11 years ago. And so unless you're an academic or an ex-academic like me, um, this probably, you know, most people listening to this probably have no idea that this ever happened. But after 2009, um, you then have the murder of Trayvon Martin in Florida. And right around that moment, in, when Trayvon Martin gets murdered, um, in the defense for the murderer, uh, George Zimmerman, they invoke Florida's Stand Your Ground law. And the Stand Your Ground law actually comes around in a lot of different states in the U.S. as actually a deliberate effort by the National Rifle Association to create laws that allow gun owners to, quote-unquote, defend themselves on their property if they're under threat, if they're under attack. Now, that that mentality of, uh, they actually use something called the Homestead Act to say, um, you know, you as, as a property owner in the U.S., you have a right to your homestead. You have a right to defend your property, including yourself. Now, that has a relatively modern history to it. And it turns out in the 70s and 80s, the NRA actually shifts its messaging. It used to be uh, um, uh, about the use of guns for, for sport, for hunting, for target shooting. Um, but it shifts its messaging in the 70s to the use of guns for self-defense self against violent crime. And in a lot of the NRA's promotional ads in the 70s and 80s, you can see this shift where the people with guns in the NRA's ads are white men. And the people who represent violent crime are depicted as gangsters, thugs, and they are black and brown men, uh, either you know urban black men um, as as drug dealing thugs and criminals, or Latino Hispanic uh, gangs coming across the border from Mexico, this is the way that the NRA portrays who violent criminals are all through the seventies and eighties and nineties. And in the NRA's um, promotional materials and magazines and so on, the NRA regularly features stories of white gun owners successfully shooting and defending their home against robbers, against rapists, against murderers, and so on. And, and so in, when Trayvon gets murdered, that stand-your-ground law 
leads to a defense of white people with guns and saying it's actually Trayvon who is at fault for acting so suspicious as a young black man, uh, even though he was completely unarmed, which then leads to Ferguson. And so Ferguson is really when the Black Lives Matter movement actually declares, uh, actually gets gets that Black Lives Matter name uh, associated in, in, in the popular lexicon with it. And Ferguson happens in 2014 because of the murder of a young, uh, unarmed black teenager, uh, Michael Brown, by uh, another police officer. And in the aftermath of that, of Black Lives Matter, one of the things that emerges is that there are sociolo sociologists who do interviews with police officers. And, and one of the things that that comes out in a striking way is that police officers begin sharing stories of how they are afraid of black men. There are all these story types, stories and stereotypes that police officers tell each other, legends, myths that they construct of black men who um, keep running at the police officer even after a bullet has been fired at them. Um, there's these these myths that they have of, of black men with superhuman strength. And, and so hence why uh, in the aftermath of, of Ferguson, there is actually a backlash and a doubling down in support of police officers saying, oh yeah, of course police officers need to use disproportionate force against black men because black men are somehow superhuman. They have this ability. This also then extends to black women too, that somehow they are, they are these monstrous superhuman people that regular uh, you know, appeals to reason don't work against. This continues that long historical project of painting black people as somehow inhuman, savage, and etc. And so this call for Black Lives Matter actually is a call to say, hang on, don't dehumanize us. Don't paint us as monsters. We are people too. Our lives matter too. But the backlash to Black Lives Matter is that it becomes seen as a threat to white people. And so right after Black Lives Matter becomes a popularly known phrase, the phrase all lives matter begins to circulate widely. And it begins to be raised as a counter uh, claim to Black Lives Matter. And there's this, this deeply unsettling um, motive behind that. This idea, this accusation that why are you saying that only Black Lives Matter? You know, all lives should matter. And there's two different schools of, of um, support for the phrase, all lives matter. There is one school, the more innocent school, the more naive school, I will say, that, you know, especially among younger people or even among older people, there is this, this hope, this expectation that, you know what, we shouldn't really see difference among each other. We are all the same. We are all humans. Shouldn't we all be together? Shouldn't we all get along? And so saying Black Lives Matter just actually just creates more division between us. Why don't we just say that all lives matter? Why don't we just, you know, embrace the spirit of unity across all humans? In fact, race itself is the thing that's divisive to us. Why don't we just forget that there's a difference of race? Uh, you can see this also with, with gender too. There are uh, for when there's a women's march or a women's move, movement or anything that's, that's specific to women, you'll often hear men say, oh, that's not really specific to women, you know, um, you know, that's, that's a universal thing or, you know, uh, men also matter too. Um, and the, the logic behind that is actually kind of surprising. It's even staying in that innocent, naive camp of like, well, okay, we're all human, yes, but there are actually important differences where it, some, of, some of these societal problems actually deliberately affect us, some people more than others. We got to recognize that. It would be like for uh, breast cancer awareness. Um, there are various days during the year where in different countries there are um, awareness campaigns around breast, breast uh, cancer. Pink ribbons, for example, and, and highlighting the stories of women suffering from cancer, from breast cancer. And, and to say in those moments, well, you know, why are we having this awareness campaign for breast cancer? You know, all cancers matter. Um, you know, or why are we only spotlighting women cancer survivors on Breast Cancer Awareness Day? You know, all cancer survivors matter. Uh, the all lives matter uh, counterclaim is, is just as ridiculous as that. In fact, it's a little worse. It's like as if if you were a, uh, you know, if you were having an event for uh, breast cancer awareness and a 
health insurance, male health insurance executive in the U.S., uh, says, no, actually, all cancer survivors matter. Until recently, health insurance in the U.S. was set up in such a way that if you were a woman and you'd had breast cancer, that was counted as a pre-existing condition and you would be denied health insurance because of that. And so uh, breast cancer affecting women uh, in, in a very systematic way was... Um, it was was the was part of this situation. So, for a health insurance executive who actually benefits from denying health insurance to women, because being a woman itself was considered a pre-existing condition until recently, for a health insurance executive to say all cancers matter, uh, or, or or all cancer survivors matter, that would be the equivalent parallel. That'd be just as that'd be seen as just as uh, you know uh, cruel and. Um, ignorant uh, and and as um, you know uh, uh, out of touch as uh, as somebody saying all lives matter in response to black lives matter and that's still in just sort of like the, the the group of folks who are at least coming coming at it from this perspective of well shouldn't all lives matter I don't get it why are we just saying black lives matter aren't we all the same there's a second group of support for all lives matter and this is the more malicious group this is the group that just absolutely uh, uh, does not want to acknowledge that black lives actually are being systematically discriminated against in black lives, that, that racism actually still exists, and that, in fact, um, they actually do agree that um, black lives shouldn't matter. So these are the explicit racists. These are the explicitly white supremacist groups. Um, and, and, and so the All Lives Matter chant uh, gets taken up by that. So one of the hopeful signs that has happened recently is that um, in the U.S. anyway, there's this increasing recognition that saying all lives matter is itself somehow racist. Now, a lot of people might not, may not know why that is. They may just feel uncomfortable saying that. And they may just realize that, oh, you know what? I don't know exactly why it's wrong to say all lives matter. I just know that it's wrong. Uh, but I, So even if I don't know why, I probably shouldn't say all lives matter. And in my mind, that's okay. It's fine that they don't know why. As long as they're aware that it's actually just not okay to say that, that's actually fine. They can get educated at, in, in time. Along with All Lives Matter, there's an, another chant that comes up, which is something called Blue Lives Matter. And now Blue Lives Matter is the more aggressive form of All Lives Matter. And what Blue Lives Matter does, it, it, it talks about uh, well, the, the color blue there is intended to represent the blue of the police uniform. And so Blue Lives Matter is a response to this to say, no, it's actually police officers' lives that matter. And it's the police who are at risk, who are placing themselves in harm's way. And it's black men who are killing police. And so there's this, this claim is even more um, malicious and hateful than the All Lives Matter claim. There's There are flags in the U.S. that show the... Uh, the stars and the stripes, instead of a red, white, and blue flag, it's a black and white flag um, where the, the the stripes are black, the the stars are white, and then there's one blue stripe that runs across the middle of the flag. And the black and white is intended to represent the colors of a police car, and the blue is intended to represent the the, the uniform of the police. And that thin, the, the blue line is supposed to represent the thin blue line that separates order from chaos. And that that police officers are that front line of defense against chaos. So that Blue Lives Matter flag, nowadays there's a lot of people that have Blue Lives Matter bumper stickers or that flag symbol. And a lot of people assume that it's a way of expressing support for the police. And they don't know that there's actually this, this sort of fascist um, uh, back story behind how that Blue Lives Matter uh, symbol came out to be. All of this, fast forward to Trump in 2016, so much of the movement to, to elect Trump actually comes from support from people in the All Lives Matter or the Blue Lives Matter camp. In fact, you would often see a close correlation. Cars that had the the Blue Lives Matter flag would also often have a Trump sticker on them, so they were tightly correlated. One of the, the, the continuing signs of this is uh, how this narrative continues, this turning point of this narrative continues, is that in Trump's Tulsa rally uh, right after Juneteenth, one of the stories he tells in this random, bizarre kind of way is he begins to talk about, you know, he paints a picture of um, why the police are so important. And he says, 
you know, uh, he tells the story of like, there's a young woman sleeping in her in her bed. Her husband is away. Maybe he's a traveling salesman or whatever he does. And there is a tough hombre coming in the window. Who is she going to call? She's going to call the police. What would happen if the police were not there? Now, of course, so this directly echoes again that stereotype, that racist stereotype of um, uh, that the NRA itself used. Um, and Trump very deliberately using the word hombre there. In fact, he says in that Trump Tulsa speech, like, this is a word that I've been known to use. So I'm going to use it again. He knows full well that he's signaling a very racist stereotype as he uses that word hombre. Shortly after that, just a couple of weeks ago, there's this example of a couple in St. Louis, Mark McCloskey and his wife, Patricia. There is a, uh, a protest that happens in, in St. Louis. There are people walking peacefully through um, a neighborhood to the mayor of, of St. Louis. And um, they're walking by this, this massive mansion. And outside this mansion, out come this short white man and his white wife and the man is carrying a rifle and the wife is carrying a tiny little pistol and they begin waving the guns around at these protesters who are just walking peacefully past they're not you know uh, coming at them but what this 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 white man and his wife what this man decides to to say to to reporters is he says um uh, you know uh, uh, we were threatened with our lives, threatened with a house being burned down, my office building being burned down, even our dog's life being threatened. It was about as bad as it can, as it can get. I mean, those, you know, I really thought it was storming the Bastille that we would be dead and the house would be burned and there was nothing we could do about it. Of course, so this is very ironic because given the, the historical significance of the Bastille in France for the French Revolution uh, and the connection with Marie Antoinette and the, the beheading of Marie Antoinette uh, after that and the cluelessness of the French royalty. Um, and it's very telling that this man chooses to associate himself with the French royalty in, in the French Revolution and not on the side of the people. Um, but so these are some of those turning point moments and the, the continuation of the, 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 the larger story, some of the larger stories that are all kind of intertwining and colliding in 2020. Uh, you have Black Lives Matter, the story of Black Lives Matter, and this, this, this effort to acknowledge um, the humanity of black lives and the centrality of the humanness of black lives and stories against the centuries-long deliberate effort to dehumanize black lives. That's one story. On the other side, you have another story here that is about uh, whiteness and the threat to whiteness posed by non-white uh, folks. So you have anti-black racism uh, and, and black lives uh, trying to counter anti-black racism on one side. And then you have um, uh, you know, uh, white supremacy and the upholding of whiteness on the other side. That's another storyline. And both of these are now colliding in 2020. So... So what do we do? What's our role in these two different storylines? Um, you know, what what role do we have to play in both of these stories? In the story of um, uh, countering and 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 challenging white supremacy and these whiteness narratives and these enlightening narratives and um, these stand your ground stories and the kinds of stories that make a white couple uh, feel like they have to go wave their guns around outside. How do we counter and challenge and expose those stories? Uh, and what's our own role in upholding those stories? And on the other hand, what's, uh, on, not, not like these are opposite, but uh, meanwhile, the other story too is what's our role in deconstructing anti-black racism, the stories that are deliberately against black lives? Um, and how do we, uh, what role do we play in continually uh, centering and celebrating and and um, humanizing black lives in all of our stories. Let's dive into that in the next segment. So which now brings me to the end of this episode, this bridge episode. This is a bridging moment in history. There are some hopeful shifts in 2020, but there is this sense that over the next several months, 
we are each called to uh, more than just play a role. We're each called to actually actively make history happen. There is a uh, uh, a conscious shift and there is a subconscious shift too. For so many of us, there's rec recognition that we need to do something now, that this isn't just about black lives. This is about our lives and how we can, uh, how we, we have to reflect on the roles that we have played in anti-black racism, but also the roles we have played in upholding some of these systems like whiteness. Um, and how do we now recognize and center black lives? How do we make black lives truly matter in stories? And how can storytelling help? Um, one of the things that I'm challenged by is to examine and reflect on and, and change some of my own, uh, the ways that I myself have benefited from um, anti-black racism. Um, as an Indian um, guy in the U.S., I've, of course, been subject to racism from uh, whiteness, but I've also benefited from uh, being not black. And this is a moment where I need to not just acknowledge that, but then do something about that. And one way is to use storytelling to actually uh, uh, flag and explain and show the difference that it makes in stories when black lives actually become the main characters in stories, not just supporting characters. So one of the ways that I'm going to try to do that beyond trying to make change happen within the company where I work, where there are significant numbers of Indian immigrants in the, in, in, in the tech world, but I'm also going to try to, in the storytelling podcast, shift the, uh, the storytelling to actually uh, stories that matter. So the Qantas story, I'm going to change that. In, in my next couple of episodes in the Storytelling 101 series, I'm actually going to try to tell the story of Henry Louis Gates from the perspective of Henry Louis Gates, have him be the main character and retell that police report story uh, and, and, and use that as a way to explain some of the concepts of scene and supporting characters. Those are the two remaining concepts in the storytelling, in the five-part storytelling series. So that's one thing. Um, and to think about what's the role that we all can play as supporting characters in each other's lives. Um, what are some ways that uh, we can see ourselves as part of a larger arc that's happening in 2020? And for me personally, for so many of us here in the U.S., and also worldwide too, uh, November 3rd is a culminating point in the story this year. Why November 3rd? Well, that's the election in the U.S. And there is this, for me, my one of my singular focuses, focus points is seeing Trump go. And not just seeing Trump go, but making it possible for, uh, for, for that to happen, making Trump go. Um, and we are all main characters in that story. Uh, and there, there are so many ways in which it's not just Trump that must go, it's the idea of Trumpism this 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 thinking that leads to the couple couple in St. Louis feeling like they have to defend themselves and, and wave guns around at unarmed peaceful protesters. Um, that whole ideology must go. And uh, and so November is a key, key turning point. And it's an uncertain turning point. It could go either way. It's yes, he's down in the polls right now, but there's absolutely no certainty that um, uh, Trumpism will actually go. So for me and so for, for so many others, that is a way that we can actually contribute to the story. There's so many other ways that so many of us can get involved. Um, and so over the next few, uh, well, for the, the, the rest of my, my podcast series, I'm going to try to spotlight at least one concrete action that many people can do in your own context uh, to be part of, of this moment in history. Um, a third thing that that um, is happening uh, is this reclaiming of of darkness, um, and that sounds like a weird thing to say, but um, this this is going against this idea of thinking about the dark side, and even uh, as a matter of language, uh, in the stories that we tell our own kids, um, how does the word dark, or how do dark people show up, or even dark. Um, uh, you know, darkness itself, how does that show up in the stories we tell our children as a trope for danger? And what are some things we can do to change that and to have different words for darkness, if you will? Um, on the flip side, 
one of the uh, the things for me is recognizing the 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 deep seated desire for um, wanting to be lighter that 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 uh, that fair and lovely cream uh, and the effect that it had on me as a kid growing up and 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 how so many voices uh, would tell me and other dark kids like me that we were um, ugly that we were monstrous that we were um, you know, undesirable because of how dark we were, and this, this, this attempt, this, there's now a, a shift to actually uh, celebrate that um, and and to push back on that. So that's also the, the ways that we consciously, those of us who are uh, not white, um, um, can also change the way that uh, who we are as main characters in our own stories. That may be a very deeply internal and a personal shift for many that may not be uh, entirely visible, but it is just as important as uh, an external change too. Um, and it's all tied up in that larger narrative. And so so with that, um, here uh, is the end of this bridge episode, but here's the continuation of the story. Here's the continuation of so many different stories in 2020. Uh, it is a historic year. So um, over the uh, one of the, the, the things I will do is the next episode is going to be on storytelling, uh, uh, the part four. But um, uh, uh, you know, every week feels like there, it's a it's a chance to, to tell the story of this year. Uh, so that may be a shift that I'm going to make in the storytelling podcast. And so I hope to hear your stories and I hope to, to see you and to be alongside you as we change history in 2020. Um, as they say in France, on y va, we go together. Stay safe. Actually, stay dangerous. And see you in the story. Thank you.